I'm going to share a few words of Torah right now, building on what I mentioned earlier about the Ach in particular. It's really the main conversation that I see taking place by the rabbis, particularly in Re'eh, and certainly in chapter 15, because it's a very, very big step. I'm indebted to the discussion by Shai Held of Hadar, because he does an excellent job in an essay he wrote several years ago of pulling together various sources. And I want to give him the credit doing a marvelous job to which I'm indebted. He's, some of his sources are ones I'll be quoting. Deuteronomy 15 offers remedies for significant challenges the destitute face. It responds to the difficulty of acquiring loans by exhorting Israel not to refuse loans to those who need them. In so doing, as Patrick Miller writes in the Princeton Seminary Bulletin, Deuteronomy 15 demonstrates the centrality of Deuteronomy's concern that access to the blessing of God be available to all the members of the community, including those who out of need and position are least likely to enjoy the blessing. Rashi, Rabbi Held, the main rabbinic debates, they focus on the fact that the Torah uses the word ach, brother, repeatedly in Deuteronomy, often in ways that firmly tie the legal and the moral. Six times in chapter 15 alone, it specifically says that one must treat as a brother, as family, as a sister, those who are socioeconomically deprived. In so doing, Rabbi Held says, Deuteronomy wants us not only to act decently, but to care deeply. Ki yevcha evyon me'achad achicha be'achad she'arecha ba'artzacha she'adonai lo'hecha no'tein lach lo te'ameitz et levavcha v'lo tikpatz et yadcha me'achecha ha'evyon. Putting the words repeatedly like me'achecha from your brothers ha'evyon the one who is craving, the one who is in need. Translated, if however there is a needy person among you, one of your kinsmen in any of your settlements in the land that the Lord God is giving you, do not harden your heart and shut your hand against your needy brother, your needy sister. Rather, you must, not like it was a good idea, you must open your hand and lend that person sufficient for what they need. Remember, so the words in Exodus and earlier in Torah, they remind us that when the needy, when those who are vulnerable are left to exploitation and sinking, that their cries out to God cause, if we do nothing to intervene, cosmic catastrophe. Here, that language of the needy person is extended, is made clear, is codified as they are your brother. They are your sister. Give to them readily and have no regrets when you do so. For there will never cease to be needy ones in your land, which is why I command you, open your hand to the porter and needy brother, sister, in your land. Patrick Miller, in his book on Deuteronomy, says in part the word brother distinguishes members of the community from outsiders, sure, but the constant invocation of brotherhood points primarily in another direction. It indicates an emphasis on the relationship. Those with whom one lives as brother and sister always have a proper claim on one's compassion and care. 
where the term brother or sister or neighbor, as I said, and talk about re'e another time, where it's applicable, enmity, disdain, negligence, and disregard are out of order. The Scheihelt says, consciously or not, explicitly or not, it is extremely easy for people to imagine that socioeconomic inequality points to some kind of real difference, some kind of deep metaphysical difference or inequality, as if the rich were in some ultimate way worth more than the poor. The Torah exhorts Israel to remember that socioeconomic status tells us nothing about the real worth of people. It reminds us that creditors have a relationship to debtors in this community that transcends shared economic reality. When you use the word brother, when you use the word sister, it shows that among members of that kind of community, economic realities are not definitional. Rather, that what is definitional is a common memory of our oppression and our freedom and release in the Exodus. What is shared, what connects us is common blessing in the land and common allegiance to the God of Exodus and the land. Chapter 17 continues using the word brother as it focuses on the king. When you have a king, that king must be just another brother or sister, right? And should never imagine themselves greater than their brothers and sisters. And specifically, they may never imagine themselves greater than the poor who are their brothers and their sisters. And the king's closeness to his brothers should never be a matter of pretense. Chapter one of Deuteronomy focuses the same thing on judges, that they should view everyone as their brothers and sisters and not be tempted into haughtiness and grandiosity. To me, so much of what animates the left politically is that the rich should become kings whom we should view as doing the rest of us a favor. They're the ones who create wealth. They're the ones who create jobs. We need to support them more. And they're fundamentally different, more gifted, more hardworking. And honestly, much of what animates the right, according to so many studies, is that those of the educated elite from universities look down on the uneducated, kind of in a sense of the judges, that they, they know more and they look down on us. And we just simply don't understand things that they have complicated and cryptic jargon for. The Torah is warning us that there must be no reality to either of these concerns. The Exodus said, in Exodus it said, don't oppress. In Deuteronomy, it tells us we must be generous. Deuteronomy radicalizes Exodus's teaching. It is not just active oppression of the poor that God finds intolerable, but even a refusal to be generous to them. Deuteronomy insists that refusing to extend a loan to the poor is tantamount to oppressing them, and it should be a jolt to the powerful. Although they may lack economic power, they do, it insists that they do have a very different kind of power, the power to bring down the wrath of God on a society that does not reach out to help them. One of the things that was occurring in this country before much of our attention gave, was given over correctly to the pandemic was the fact of the lack of enforcement, the fact that there was really no enforcement of laws that have come up in the last few decades to change loan practices that are to those who are socioeconomic deprived and those who have qualities that have caused them to be discriminated against, especially people of color 
and people living in economically deprived areas. The Home Mortgage Disclosure Act, initially enacted in 1975 and substantially expanded in 1989, 2002, and 2010, required banks to, this is all it required, that they disclose the demographic information about their mortgage lending. The law aimed to curb discrimination in lending to create more equal opportunity to access credit. It was really just about reporting so that community organizations could engage in trying to understand what was going on. Mortgage lending disclosure was part of Congress's response to activist calls in the later stages of the civil rights movement of the 60s and 70s for a greater economic equality. It followed congressional action in 1968 to bar racial discrimination in housing sales or rentals, the settlement negotiated by the Department of Justice to end racial discrimination in the appraisal profession, and approval of the Federal Equal Opportunity Act in 1974, which outlawed racial and ethnic discrimination in lending. Community-based organizations pressed for disclosure requirements to aid their local campaigns to end lending discrimination. In 1977, Congress approved the CRA, Community Reinvestment Act, which required lending institutions to meet the credit needs of the communities in which they operated and linked community lending records to approval of merger applications. Michigan was one of the leaders in broad-based community reinvestment task forces. The Detroit Free Press's 1988 expose on racial influence in lending in Detroit was a landmark. And in 1992, the Boston Federal Reserve concluded that race was a major factor in lending decisions. Chicago Tribune has pointed out that 50 years after the Federal Fair Housing Act banned racial discrimination in lending, African-Americans and Latinos continue to be routinely denied conventional mortgage loans at rates far higher than their white counterparts. Are they seen as brothers and sisters, conscious or unconscious? This modern day redlining persisted in 61 metro areas, even when controlling for applicants' income, loan amount, and neighborhood, according to millions of Home Mortgage Disclosure Act records analyzed by Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting. It found a pattern of troubling denials for people of color across the country, including in areas like Atlanta and Detroit, Philadelphia, Rockford, Illinois, St. Louis, and San Antonio, and Africans faced a special resistance in Southern cities like Mobile, Greenville, and Gainesville, and Latinos in Iowa City. It's an ugly history. In the 1930s, surveyors with the Federal Home Owners Loan Corporation drew lines on maps, and as you well know, colored some neighborhoods red, deeming them hazardous, quote unquote, for bank lending. And I wanna remind you that it was not only because of the presence of African-Americans but specifically redlining was applied for Jews. Redlining has been outlawed now for half a century. So what's been going on recently, as you might know, but is somewhat shielded from all of what goes on in the press, is that the present administration has gone the other way, weakening the standards bank must meet to pass a Community Reinvestment Act exam. In the first couple of years of the Trump presidency, the Justice Department did not sue a single lender for racial discrimination. Now, I want to point out if anybody's like, I can't believe he mentioned the president's name and I'm opposed to it, please listen, okay? In January of this year, President Trump proposed changing the landmark Community Reinvestment Act. Banks don't like lending in low-income neighborhoods, 
although we know that they profit from the deposits of those people who live there. And so he has sought and issued orders that the act be changed to basically ignore issues around people of color and socioeconomic status, and rather focus on geographic area. And there are those who argue on the president's behalf that this is a fairer system. And I, so I wanna say there are legitimate differences of policy here. There are also those who obviously argue on the other level that it basically destroys everything that has been built up to in what is admittedly a very convoluted way of trying to enforce what started out as just regulatory disclosures and um, directives and how they can be applied. For example, building a stadium in a depressed area, all of the money banks lend for such a billion dollar enterprise would count as money that they are loaning our brothers and sisters who have been redlined in the past. And I think that's a serious problem. In 2008, figures from the US Census Bureau showed that the median net worth for an African-American family is now $9,000, compared with $132,000 for a white family. Latino families have a median net worth of $12,000. So regardless of whether you think this particular reform is right or wrong, there can be no doubt from today's Torah portion that unfair lending practices are not a minor violation of Torah. They are a loud and clear transgression that is incompatible with community. And when we fail in this regard, call destruction upon our society. We must understand Deuteronomy 15, that we must see all applications for loans as brothers and sisters. And that is demand of Torah, even when they clearly might look different than the loan officer or from the board of the lending institution. The Torah demands color blindness and socioeconomic blindness. blindness. The Pertzliya of Yon right there connected with the word ach. Any deviation is a call for divine retribution. Shabbat Shalom.